when I've worked on dark patterns cases, which I've done for regulators, you know, the clearest cases of those are the people or the uh, companies that are engaged in just outright deception. There's no value proposition. They are just there to deceive you and to get your money. Um, and so not to say that we won't see hucksters <laughs> in the consent economy. Um, of course, you know, again, if you can try to control the dark patterns piece of the puzzle and not force people into, into consent, then maybe there's uh, some check on that. But that, you know, there's just lots of instances today where I think there really is no value proposition there for people. And so, you know, it kind of forces you, I would argue, to level up a bit in thinking through, like, what is the actual value of your business that you're offering to people? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX, and I'm Michelle Dennity, your co-host of our latest series examining the role of digital identity in advancing a consent-based economy. Joining us today in the studio is Dr. Jennifer King, the Privacy and Data Fellow at Stanford University Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. And don't worry, we're going to talk about what that means. An information scientist by training, Dr. King is a recognized expert and scholar in information privacy, sitting at the intersection of human-computer interaction, law, and the social sciences, her research examines the public's understanding and expectations of online privacy, as well as the policy implications of emerging technologies. Most recently, her research explored alternatives to notice and consent with the World Economic Forum and the impact of California's new privacy laws and dark patterns. Her scholarship has been recognized for its impact on policymaking by the Future of Privacy Forum, and she has been an invited speaker before the Federal Trade Commission at several commission workshops. Dr. King has been featured in numerous publications and outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and MIT Technology Review, and she previously served as the Director of Consumer Privacy at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, and as co-director of the Center for Technology, Society, and Policy, a graduate student-led research center at UC Berkeley. She's a busy woman, and we're pleased to have her. Stay tuned. The latest chapter of Identikit Sequin X is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Smarter Markets, everyone. I am here with an old friend, a young old friend, I should put that way, um, who is, um, let's call her the king. Let's call her Dr. King. <laughs> Welcome, Jen. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. We've had a really fun variety during this sequence talking about identity and its intersection with things like privacy and future markets and creating value. Let's hear from you, Jen. Like, how did you get into this stuff? And, and what are you doing now that really is related to creating um, future value and, and future smarter markets? 
I've been in the privacy space for almost 15 years, I want to say. I worked in industry. I worked in the internet industry specifically for almost seven, eight years before I transitioned to academia. And so I've been kind of researching privacy ever since I made that transition. And part of what brought me there both was a, I'd say a pre-existing interest in things like civil liberties from my undergraduate days. But also I worked at uh, Yahoo. That was my last internet job before making the switch and really saw a lot of the same issues we are dealing with today back in 2002 to 2004 when I was there. You know, a lot of the same content moderation issues, privacy issues. They were just much smaller, <laughs> smaller scope, smaller scale. Um, and in those days, when you try to talk about these things, people would give you that tinfoil hat look. And so that's really shifted. I think, uh, well, I wish the, the problems weren't there, but at least the conversation's gotten more legitimate. So it was really kind of dealing with a lot of that stuff hands-on that led me to the path that I'm on now. It's really, I mean, it, it takes a lot of foresight to continue pursuing this path. I say that with all humility because I've been following Jen and her work for a long time. Um, I think it's really smart stuff. I'm wondering, yes, the scale has changed, but do you think fundamentally the issues have changed when it comes to actually managing a digital asset and, and approaching it with ethics. Have we even really cracked that code to begin looking at that? I think that a few things have changed, you know, in the last 15 or so years. You know, one is that we moved from being really disconnected to very connected, right? And so obviously, you know, Facebook has been a big part of that, but it's not only Facebook. You know, there's a lot of ways in which we're all connected in ways that just didn't exist before. You know, you know, if you were on the internet in the early 2000s, you had to seek out the people that you were interested in. And now that's just you know, it's a totally different concept. You know, and I think too, a lot of the public discussions we're having now are, um, I mean, we're seeing both the benefits and I would say some of the real negative externalities of people being so widely connected and for information to be shared in the ways that it is now and for us to all have the ability to kind of wreak havoc on those systems. And so, I mean, I think that's changed a lot. Certainly the kind of concentration of power in the tech industry is completely different than it was you know, back then. And that has huge impacts as well. And I think reactions, you know, it's funny, people have talked about tech lash for the past few years as if it was going to be this passing fad. And, you know, I just find that, frankly, kind of laughable. <laughs> it's not much like we talk about the pandemic and returning to normal. I don't think we're going to return to 2015 when it comes to tech either. <clears throat> you know, there's just a lot of concerns about the concentration of power. And so we're seeing some really creative interesting potential solutions to that coming up, at least in the space I've been working in. And that's, you know, to answer your earlier question, what are the kind of things I'm thinking about uh, looking towards the future? That's some of the, the things I'd like to talk about in terms of how we move forward. A comment, I guess, before we get into where you're going, which I think is really exciting, which is I hear Facebook, 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 TikTok, but what about the Rupert Murdoch empire? What about Ted Turner's CNN all the time and the filler that, and I, and I will, you know, in full, you know, biased, I'll call it filler. We used to have the news and you used to have like X amount of sources and you used to have, have to like think about what is newsworthy. In fact, we have a whole body of law in defamation law about 
what is newsworthy and who is a newsworthy person if they could be actually dragged through the public. So when I look at some of the vehicles of this behavior, I can't leave the CNNs and the Foxes and, you know, I don't watch enough television to know the other things by name. Maybe BBC has gotten into this jam too. But so you've got all this information, you've got all these media, you've got now by definition, 24 by seven coverage. Let's go where you're going, because that's where I want to be. And and can you talk sort of definitionally first and then pragmatically? What is a human-centered artificial intelligence? I feel like we've all lost our human intelligence. So how are we going to get to a human-centered artificial intelligence? Boy, you don't start with the easy questions. Never. (laughs) You've known me for a long time, Jen. This is how this was going to go down today. Come on now. That's why we bring the smarty pants like you. All right. Let me see if I can try to chip out a piece of that. You can, And you can break it up. My questions are notoriously terrible. So go for it. Um, So I think that right now with this kind of notion of human centered, we're in this interesting space where I would say I come out of the field of human computer interaction, which is where human centeredness, I don't want to say it originates there, but it's certainly a big piece of kind of what we think about um, in terms of technology and design. And my sense is that we are in the middle of a shift in terms of trying to understand what it means to be human centered. I mean, I think in the last 15 to 20 years that went from, you know, designing technologies without thinking about the end user to, oh my gosh, we actually need to get people involved in the design of technologies, bring them in, have them participate, participate, you know, participant centered design, think about those humans, uh, make them part of the process. And now I think we're uh, much like we are with the broader society in general, having the critical questions about which humans who, you know, who needs to be there. We want to design a product for a certain slice of society, but whoops, wait a second. It may have impacts on other slices of society. So who are we bringing in and how are we thinking about the impacts so I think we're in, frankly, we're in process with that right now is my read. And there's also, I think, some real critical questions coming to the surface around what does human-centered design mean if it's thinking more about ethics and values and not just about efficiency? And this is one of the tensions I see in privacy right now is this, on the one hand, I want to get you through signing up for something, clicking through those terms and conditions, reading those privacy policies as quickly as possible and make it frictionless because nobody wants to read these things, right? But on the other hand, you know, a lot of us are screaming, bring back the friction because you've made it too easy and now nobody reads anything. What do we do? You know, so I think that we're in this point where you see a lot of design having been thought of as trying to delight the user or making things bleed into the background. And yet there's this other tension of saying, wait a second, I don't want this stuff completely bled into the background. I want to be able to know that it's there and it's present. It's telling me what it's doing. I don't want surveillance cameras in my home that disappear into the background. (laughs) I want to know they're on and recording things potentially. So I think there's a lot of tension there between what do we think of as kind of necessary friction and what do we think of as I guess, extraneous friction. And so that's a real sticking point because I think, especially in HCI, there's been so much emphasis on making things easier for people. Like, what does it mean for it to be usable? But, you know, you could argue that the processes by which we go through privacy policies today are actually, in fact, quote unquote, highly usable, but they don't yield (laughs) any real benefit for people, right? 
So in some of my work, part of that's trying to pick apart some of the assumptions and say, wait a second, we've never even stopped to think about how you make the consent process, for example, more human designed. But on the other hand, do I want to force somebody to read through a privacy policy? Well, I would also say maybe we, we, need, we need to rethink the whole world of privacy policies, for example, so that we're not taking people. And you have obviously a law background. So you, you, know, you understand that that process was probably never thought of from a human-centered perspective. It was always I'm taking a physical paper contract and slapping it on the internet. Right. <laughs> like there was no thought about how do I make this easier for people to understand it? You know, the, that wasn't at all part of the criteria. No. And the people who were designing the requirements, I mean, people complain about privacy policies all the time of how long and, and incomprehensible. And yet it's, it's often the legislative teams that are requiring, I want you to make it super simple, but I, you have to say X, Y, Z, P, D, Q, on and on. And so because they're not accountable for the consumers that actually have to look at it and the desire, if there is a desire to educate those people to have informed consent rather than clickbait consent, the people who are designing the policies are not the same people executing them and the people executing them may not be the ones profiting. So how do we have, I mean, all artificial intelligence and, and, and intelligence, intelligence depends on high quality data, right? So right. are we diminishing the quality of the data before we even get to how are we looking at the system to do our analysis, to, to start to propel us forward, it's only going to get noisier, as you pointed out. So let me try to decompose some of this because there's a lot there. So we thought, we, you know, you mentioned data. Obviously, you can't have AI without data. So data is, you know, such a core piece of this ecosystem. And from my perspective as a privacy person, I feel like it's a piece of the puzzle that we haven't really been talking much about in kind of the AI space. And so I think we are slowly moving towards a world where there is a pressure on, on companies to cede control, at least of individual data, in the way that we've seen it collected and managed to date. And part of this, I think, is both a reaction to concentration in tech and trying to rebalance power. And part of it, I think, is also just trying to rethink the entire data ecosystem, uh, because I think there's been some really interesting work that's been emergent in the last couple of years towards how do we move? I mean, you see a lot of this in, in the security space, for example, where we're trying to rethink how do we completely redo the, the architecture of the internet to something more secure by design rather than the kind of Rube Goldberg machine that we've developed <laughs> for the last 20 years. Even two-factor, right? It's like we now can have two-factor if you want to have some sort of a surveillance. I refuse to call them smart devices. If you want some sort of a surveillance or a convenience uh, voice search engine in your home, there's no reason why you can't have the choice to have a two-factor authentication or a little bit of friction, as you said earlier. But I think one of the things that we're moving towards in the data space is, and I'm sure this is the type of thing that VCs really hate to hear, is this, you know, world where we just assume that there is data out there for the taking, uh, you know, that companies can kind of build themselves up off of data sets that are, quote unquote, public, but not really, <laughs> you know, 
I think Clearview AI is the best example of this, that you know I can build an entire business off data that I've scraped, maybe technically legally, it's still a gray area, but certainly not without with consent, not with the you know full understanding of the people whose data has been included in that data set, image data specifically. The assumption that we can just continue to build businesses that way, I think is doomed. Honestly, it's going to be doomed by regulation. And if it's not doomed by regulation in the US in the next couple of years, certainly Europe is going to do its very best to squash it. And so I would argue that companies need to absolutely think creatively and more have a more forward thinking strategy about what to do, because you can't just assume you can keep keeping any data about people without their consent. It's just it's not sustainable. You will continue to see people pushing back against that. And so the area that I've been following in this space is really thinking through these kind of collective action type solutions for how you give people meaningful control by also acknowledging that nobody wants to actually control their data. So the area where you see this happening is things like data governance with specific things like data trusts, for example. And so I think already in the EU, you have the proposed Data Governance Act, right, which was not really focused on the personal data sector, as far as I can tell but much more thinking about these broader issues of like public data. And I think you can think of instances like smart cities, for example, as being kind of a, I think a really good exemplar of what's a situation where there was going to be data generated in both kind of the public sphere and the private sphere. And you don't necessarily want, you know, a corporation to access that data, but the cities may not necessarily want to quote unquote manager quote own it as well. So, What's the best solution? Potentially something like a data trust where, you know, you have somebody who has kind of a fiduciary duty to work in the best interests of the people whose data that is, licensing it, managing it, you know, providing access to it, declining access to situations where they think that doesn't meet the, the needs of their particular customers. And so I think there's probably going to be more of this in the like B2B space starting out and maybe in the public sphere. The real game changer is if we start moving more towards, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles no longer holding personal data in the way they do now and individuals being able to control that through something like a data trust. But again, the key here is that, you know, as somebody whose degree is in information management and systems, nobody wants to actually spend their time managing this data. I mean, we've seen versions of this proposal even back in the early 2000s, but it was much more focused on, you know, selling my data to advertisers, you know, which at that point we didn't have the infrastructure really to even consider that. I think we're getting closer to it, but even so, none of that, I mean, the same way you don't want to spend hours a day managing your photos. <laughs> like nobody wants to sit there and like spend hours a day trying to figure out which advertisers should I sell my data to or give access to because I'm not advocating selling data. So I mean, I having to keep that in mind, and I think the consumer frontier for this is, will be one of the hardest ones to cross because it's going to require you know a certain amount of delegation and ease of use that keeping in mind, nobody wants to actually spend their time doing this, except for maybe us data privacy geeks. Yeah, just us. And, and even us, like, I don't want to do it either. <laughs> and I and I care about it. And I know what the impacts are. And it's horrific. And I still don't want to do it. Because like everyone else, I'm interested in creating new things and creating new values rather than saying, Oh, my gosh, I only want this when I want that. And when it comes down to particularly, as you said, I think I'm going to underline this is we're not advocating selling your data, or even companies selling their data as some sort of a secret new digital currency. That's not what we're talking about at 
all because then it comes back down to price. Even if you said this one is mildly better than that one, most people would say, I don't really have the, the wherewithal to get it. So two ideas are kind of emerging in my head simultaneously. One is I would love for you to define for our listeners dark patterns. And at the same time, I'll sort of throw out there uh, a meat world uh, analogy of data curation and persona and self-sovereign identity. So when I show up at a restaurant, maybe the proprietor recognizes me. There's a few places I go all the time, especially now that my, you know, my, my range has been foreshortened and mad, you know, hugely. Um, so I go to this out, outdoor dining area where I can get a good hamburger and she recognizes me. And she might even, we might have had a chit chat here and there about what we, what I do for a living outside of her restaurant. But for her purposes and my purposes, I am a patron. I am a restaurant person. She might know my order. She'll still ask me if I want that. We'll have an interaction. She knows that I will whip out a credit card and on that goes. So I'm acting, not actively curating my persona. But we do know as humans how to have a self-sovereign identity in the real world. And so rather than saying, I want to peel off who's the highest bidder for Michelle's lunch dollar today, I want to instead say, I want to have the choice to go where I want to go. I still want to be asked for my order, even if I order the same things 99% of the time. And it's not intrusive. And it's actually quite enjoyable to have that tiny bit of human interaction these days. So how does that meat world? example jive with, and, and if you would define some of these dark patterns, which most people outside of Geeklandia really have never heard of? You know, I think the world that you're describing is one that depends on a technical layer for sure. And I actually don't see any way out of this kind of world or this ecosystem of personal data management that's not delegated in some way. You know, whether it's AI or not is, I think, a totally separate question. This is a space I've been working on, actually, um, with some ongoing projects with the World Economic Forum. And so we have a white paper that we wrote last year in 2020 talking about consent. And one of the uh, ideas that came out of the, the workshop and the paper that we did on that was working through, I mean, this is not a new idea, the idea of kind of autonomous agents you know, that do your bidding. But in particular, you know, if you can imagine today the world of password managers that actually were more, I guess, more enabled to do things on your behalf, you know, I think that is probably where we need to be in the future with kind of privacy and data. But I think underlying all of that is an ecosystem of trust, um, you know, which is one of the most mostly used, overused, I think, and also least understood words. In, yeah, and underinvested in. Yeah, in the tech <laughs> ecosystem today, you know, is this question of trust. And in this, the example you gave, I think that is more of a trust relationship built on real world ties. You know, the other question here is to what extent are you delegating trust based on kind of other assurances? I would put it in terms of assurances. What are the things in the world that are trust markers or indicate to you that something is worthy of your trust or trustworthy? The extent to which I think law and regulation is kind of pro-consumer and, you know, we have actual legislative frameworks, especially in the U.S., that are set up to encourage trust would be one part of the equation. And I think the other part is the extent to which you can control these interactions. And I don't mean, I don't want to talk about control and have the immediate picture come to mind of 
you know, I'm faced with a page of privacy settings that I'm going to just tweak and twiddle. Like that's how we've expressed control so far, but I think it goes much broader than that and also needs to not necessarily be so labor intensive, which again is that, that kind of middle ground between too much friction and not enough friction, I would argue. But I don't see a world where I would hate to see a world where we invest in the technology to do this and it becomes extremely high friction. I mean, maybe like the first time you go back to that restaurant, you have some type of, you know, software system that enables you to share some amount of data with the restaurant. You know, that should be completely under your control and you should be able to, to tweak it to what you want. I think what concerns me in this space is in the companies that we've seen trying to do this work, it's a lot of trying to anticipate and guess what you want rather than maybe you taking the lead. And I guess that, that's what I get concerned about with kind of the, the reliance on prediction that I see a lot of, especially as discussions of, of AI beginning to try to anticipate that we want to anticipate your every need. And I think you need to make room for those of us who don't want these systems to anticipate our every need. It's creepy. And refuse. You know, there's a lot of good discussions today around what I think the academic literature calls refusal, you know, which is just literally being able to say no, <laughs> opt me out of this. You know, I want to have the opportunity to make this a purely offline in-person tra transaction between two people and not to involve technology, right? So I, mean, I think that's an piece of, important piece of it. So let me now segue into dark patterns for a second. So there's a lot of interest in dark patterns right now. And I think, unfortunately, it's because they've seen pretty explosive growth in the last five years overall. So what are dark patterns? You know, dark patterns are design choices that uh, manipulate or careers people into decisions that they wouldn't have necessarily made on their own. Or even if they would have potentially made that decision, the path has been greased, essentially, to get you there uh, with, you know, again, maybe minimal friction but maybe without you being able to say, hey, wait a second, I don't want this, I want to do that. And so regulators are very interested in this right now uh, because there are lots of instances, especially there's kind of a few sectors where we see them prominently. Privacy is one, you know, where we see consent mechanisms that don't give you any kind of opportunity to not consent, for example. EU cookie dialogues, I think, are the most obvious example of that. And we do have seen them shift in the last year. A lot of Although you do see a lot of cookie dialogues from U.S. companies being shown to U.S. users that are what I think of as kind of the EU 1.0 model, which is like, we have cookies. You must accept them. Exactly. <laughs> or I'm going to annoy you with this flashy stuff and you can't read anything that you wanted to read. You have no ability to reject them in any form. But we've also seen this in a lot of financial spaces. And I don't mean finances and banks. I mean, finances in any place where people are actually having to make a financial transaction and not like a free context. So the travel industry, I would say, I would point my finger at them very broadly, that if you've tried to plan travel in the last couple of years, you've begun to notice how many sites either have hidden fees, you don't actually see the total cost of something until you're at the checkout screen. There's a lot of kind of social dark patterns that get employed, you know, and you see this not just with travel, but other shopping areas where 93 other people are looking at this item right now, or the infamous the only one left or the infamous countdown timer, uh, you know, you have 10 minutes to commit to this offer. In most cases, not all, there are probably some where they are actually legitimate. They, you know, there really are 93 people looking at this, this dress, 
But in most cases, those are fictional. They're just kind of elements of what we call social proof. They're there to kind of convince you, to put social pressure on you to make a decision. Gam- you know, the whole gambling space, I think, is kind of the epitome of dark patterns. <laughs> right. Like, how do people think those hotels got built? That's what I always wondered is like, is Vegas a place for people who failed math? I don't understand. You're not going to win. But, uh, you know, at least with gambling, like you go into it knowing that taking your money is a part of the equation. You know, unfortunately, we see this in so many other consumer contexts where we don't assume we're going to get, you know, grifted as part of the occasion. Right. Would you put even like some of this stuff like this weekend, the explosive, like people are taking their pets like worm medicine. That feels like a I mean, it's misinformation and propaganda, but it also, to me, feels almost like a dark pattern. I mean, do you think that's, is that included in what you examine? Or are you really looking at what are the things that are sort of making the advertisement or enticement misleading? So I would say Dark Patterns 1.0 has been kind of the mapping of the way we see them used in design and primarily in, used in design in ways that affect everybody. So like everybody gets the same kind of indicators of social proof on a particular website. Everybody gets the same like, you know, shady looking shopping cart. It's been that process right now of kind of just mapping out what's there and the, what I would call like static design interfaces. And I think the next layer, and there are already some people delving into this. I'm kind of at the beginning of my journey in this space right now is thinking through kind of the algorithmic dark patterns, you know, so the ways in which algorithms are being kind of tuned. I mean, the most obvious one is just saying that you're optimizing for engagement. I mean, that's the thing we see, you know, everywhere where, you know, everything's optimized for engagement, you know, and it becomes very hard not to take the clickbait. But I think the the intersection of cognitive design and personal data, (laughs) where it's not that I'm just using kind of Basing my designs on cognitive heuristics and biases, the things that most, if not all humans, are kind of prone to falling prey to. But I'm also using that with the fact that I know it's Michelle. And I know that you're on my website. And I know, for example, that, you know, you would respond much more positively to a kind of checkout experience where all the graphic design, you know, is green instead of yellow or instead of blue. That's the world that I'm kind of starting to try to look at it and I'm more worried about um, where we start to personalize dark patterns, essentially. But just to like pull back for a second, you know, the concern is that in these design spaces, and these are all designed, everything online is designed, right? I mean, we take it for a given and there's a lot of consistency between websites in terms of like what we've kind of figured out what works for people to just process information and to understand things. But there's been a tilt towards, instead of giving you a like objective design space. And I'm not even sure objective is the right word because it probably doesn't exist. But something that is constructed to kind of foreclose the outcome that I as the designer want you to have. You know, I want you to sign up for my service. I want you to spend money. I want you to do this. And, you know, the challenge here is that there's obviously, there can be a really thin line between my my ability to persuade you versus my ability to out and out be deceptive, let alone coercive. 
the cases of deception are usually much easier to spot. I mean, because that is planting false beliefs, literally using the FTC's definition. You know, that is that I say that, you know, this diet pill will make you lose 50 pounds the first day you take it. And, you know, it's, it's a lie. <laughs> There's no evidence. I take it and I don't lose 50 pounds. I mean, that is flat out deception. Um, the harder space is this gray area between, again, like friction versus not friction. Where can I gently move you down the path towards where I want you to go versus you having any kind of free will or any decision to pull out and make another choice. More and more, we're seeing kind of the somebody's thumb on the scale towards pushing you down a particular path that we want you to go to. I like to bring things back to the, to the, uh, the physical world sometimes just to sort of clarify my own head. So Ikea, dark pattern, or it's just hard to get out. <laughs> My I mean, it's planned. Just There's, Ikea this I love Ikea. <laughs> I, and I love these super cheap meatballs. I love the play center. When my girls were little. I love a good Ikea. That, so no, no dispersion on the brand. But the experience is a very, very curated and guided. You're supposed to walk through all their stuff. Is, is that on the pattern of persuasion? But it's for everyone. So it's not just for me, but everyone gets, you know, that. I would argue that that might be on the mild coercion side, with the exception that, I mean, and I do this and I don't, I assume other people do it too. I mean, there's some safety valves at Ikea. Like when you first walk in, at least to the Ikea that I visit on a regular basis, I know that if I turn left, I can skip past the entire furniture showroom <laughs> and get straight down to the marketplace. And even when you're in the marketplace, you know, you realize there is the path of least resistance or you can look and they have them signed. You got to look, though, for the like shortcuts. And so you can navigate. I mean, I do literally feel like a rat in a maze in this example, but like you can find the shortcuts. Um, I like it, though, because I know what it looks like. I've been there a bunch of times and I still go back. So that's my choice. So when we when we take that sort of an example, even if it was possible to have like a get out app for our apps, at, at what point are we choosing to be in the maze and what point are is the maze truly coercing us? I, it's just I, I'm sure there's not an a capital A answer, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that. So I think that if the maze had zero possibility of exit, then it would be completely coercive. The fact that you have to kind of learn it, to me, angles more towards it being mildly coercive. I think if it were non-coercive, they would have the shortcuts very clearly signed and, you know, kind of show you that there's an alternate path. I mean, I could even imagine literally a, you know, color-coded walkway, for example, that kind of shows you the, the area that would navigate you through the entire store. But, oh, look, here's the kind of shortcut if you just want to get to the registers, right? Or even in the extreme example, like I walk in the exit half the time because I know I just want to go to that little like section by the exit to get something. <laughs> and so you walk past the security guards just to get in there, right? But there is a way. You can learn it. And so I think this is a really great example. And like if it were truly manipulative as well, then you would have the equivalent of, you know, a three-year-old in the cart with you grabbing things off the shelf when you weren't looking and sticking them in the cart. And when you actually get to check it, you're like, oh, I didn't remember that I grabbed that thing. You know, that is what we see on some sites, some e-commerce sites with, you know, kind of manipulative design where you're actually being, you know, things are being added to your shopping cart and don't show up until the checkout that you didn't even know were in there. 
right? And so that to me is like, Ikea doesn't do that. Let's be, I'm going to be clear <laughs> at all. Right, right. I don't want to pick on them. I do love them. They're great. But I, it's such a good example for me too, because I'll, I'll give you, you went to the three-year-old. So I have in the past had a smaller kid in the car and a bigger kid that wanted like the sandwich cookies with the lingonberry jam inside, which is delish. And I would tell her, here's a dollar, go in here, turn left, go in there. And I remember I did this once and, you know, I'm not a monster. Well, not always. A mo- I, I'm not a monster to my children. Let's put it that way. A limiting factor. Um, but I, I think the older one was maybe 10 and she came back sobbing and I said, gosh, what happened, babe? And she said, um, there's a big man there. You can't go left. You have to go right. There's a big man there. And I thought, gosh, you know, I just walk on by that guy sitting there to get my stuff when I want to do my stuff. But if you are someone who doesn't realize or feel like, you know, you can read the signs and all the rest, it's a blockade. So even with the kind of mild push in these dark pattern situations, not all identities and not all humans are equipped to manage their identities equally. Absolutely. Right. And so that's the other, I think, really challenging piece of this puzzle. Let's just take privacy policies as an example of that. So even if, you know, there have obviously been efforts to make privacy policies more readable and more simplified. In most cases, it's being done by companies who are under FTC consent decrees, but I'll leave that to the side. You're not seeing a lot of innovation outside that space. But there has been, and there's been some real serious research put into this question. However, the piece that I think that still really remains untouched is how do we design that space, not just to quote, simplify it, make it easier to understand, but then we add in, I am 80 years old, or I am under 13, or I don't know English as a first language, or I, you know, am an adult that only had a, you know, secondary school education at most. Like, how do we intersect that with something like a privacy policy? Or I'm an adult with a migraine. Usually I'm quite bright when I have a migraine. I just want to get out of pain. And if I'm going on a telemedicine or some sort of a huckster site, I'm in a different disposition. Right. And so, you know, and here's where we start to collide with things like personalization. Like, do we want to build systems that personalize based on those factors? You know, do I want a version of the privacy policy that is graphical and almost like a comic book if I am a kid or I am, you know, limited English proficiency or, you know, whatever that factor might be, right? Do I want to reveal that? You know, do I want to just make that a kind of selectable choice that there's different paths through this process that are optimized for, you know, kind of one vulnerability versus another? You know, I don't see a way out of that without legislation in some ways. Um, And without potentially a lot of, if not direct intervention, kind of oversight, by the government in the design process, which is a pretty uncharted territory. (laughs) We don't have a lot of design expertise in governments around the world, let alone here, right? And I think we should. It's part of kind of the whole work I do in the public interest technology space is trying to encourage more investment in technologists participating in the public sphere. But, you know, I think looking at the field of accessibility is a useful example in terms of like, if we did try to take that approach, what is a model? Let's look at how we've tried to design. And I would say overall poorly, uh, you know, accessibility is not universally kind of well incorporated into our society, but it is, I think, at least the one starting point we could look at for saying, okay, you know, this is what we've tried to specify for people with, you know, visual 
challenges? Like, how do we think about specifying that for people with other types of vulnerabilities? Which is to say, that's a hard, long road, <laughs> quite honestly. But I think it's the type of thing we need to think about. But it's one of those, um, I mean, it's a real challenge to figure out at what point do you delegate that decision making to kind of the legislative sphere? Do you leave it with companies? But like, on what basis? Do I want them to know that I'm blind? Or do I want them to know that I don't have a high education when they, I mean, to some extent, they probably already do, but it's different from me telling them than them inferring it, right? So I think these are some of the areas where we see these different kind of social issues beginning to intersect more concretely with kind of the design issues. And I will be the first to say, I don't have a clear example of exactly how we should move forward yet, but this is an area that I think absolutely the design community needs to step up and be a part of, which I think has been very kind of agnostic and uninvolved with kind of kind of public you know issues and public policy. I look around and I'm still one of the few people with any kind of that background that is trying to be part of this space. And so I'm all for trying to increase involvement by the broader design community in these types of discussions. So Dr. King, let's put on our, our rabid capitalist hats for a moment here. You don't hear traders often talking about their feelings, but this feels good, right? It feels like I do want, if I'm paying for a luxury experience, I want that clean. I want the kinds of choices. I want the blah, blah. If I'm going in for fast food, I want that predictability. So it doesn't mean that only the high end and only the rich should get the enriched data experience, whether they want to be secluded or whether they want to be public and promoting their persona. But it feels like because there is so much human drive toward personalization when they want it, secrecy when they don't want that publicity, and some sort of a participation, these these social media networks would not continue to be so popular and selective for generations. I mean, Facebook is dying because people like me think it's cool. They need the youngsters. You know, Instagram's fine. So the company Facebook is fine for now. Anyway, whatever's, I mean, you guys get it together. I love you guys. Get it together. So if they got it together, and, and as I think is shown by the explosion of the TikToks and Kick and all these other social platforms, people do drive themselves to choices that feel good. And those are commercial decisions. So how do we bring the desire to have better design, more human-centric design, creating better quality of data for analysis for AI? How do we demonstrate to investors that this is a place of wild innovation? We don't have enough answers. We don't have the right technology. And we have lots and lots and lots of buyers. That sounds like a new market to me. How do we sell ourselves into the smarter markets community? I think you flip the data model. Honestly, I just, I think you flip the data model. I think, and I think that is one of the key pieces for trust. To go back to the trust word, the data model today is based on third-party surveillance. And it's based on, you know, companies that you don't know, that you don't have a relationship sorting you and putting you into categories and classifying you in ways that you have no control over and no visibility into. And I think you have to flip that because people are willing to be marketed to if they can choose under what conditions, right? 
And so part of this is probably driven by the large platforms and the the amount of data they have under their control and how much they don't want to lose control of that data. But I think that if I were betting on the future, I would be looking past the Facebooks and the Googles and figuring out how to flip this market. And it doesn't mean the end of advertising, I would argue, in any way. You know, we know that people don't like spam, but we also know that people are really validated when they are seen. And this is one of like one of the one of the tensions I've seen over and over again when I've also talked in public about these issues. I will have folks in particular from the LBGTQ community say, I want to be advertised to because the first time I got an ad that like saw me as a gay person, I felt totally validated. Like they saw me. I exist. I can be somebody who can be marketed to just as an example. And I mean, you know, I don't like seeing advertising I don't care about. And there are some I absolutely opt into because I want to hear those messages. Right. And so I don't think that just because we are flipping it and stopping the kind of just indiscriminate data collection without people's consent that this somehow spells the end of this whole sector. I think you just need to kind of turn it on its head, give control back to people in a way that doesn't necessarily require them having to babysit their data on a daily basis, you know, with safety rails in place through legislation. And there's still plenty of a market there. There's still a capitalist market in data. It's just that it's no longer based on completely vacuuming up every bit of data you can possibly get. And it may be a much higher quality as well. If you're actually having people participate in that process instead of just being acted on like objects. So that to me, you know, were I not in academia, (laughs) it's where I'd be kind of putting my money because I don't, I just find it mystifying that companies don't see this and they react to it so negatively as if, and I, I don't know if it's just because everybody's addicted to free and just assumes that you know, the only way forward is to not pay for anything in here. And, you know, guess what? There may actually need to be some some costs here that this entire data ecosystem that's built on free is not sustainable. It's not kind of culturally sustainable if you want to make a, a analogy to environmentalism, the same way that you can't just keep kind of raping the the, the commons um, and, you know, raping public resources and, and pillaging. You can't do that to data, even though data is not obviously a physical object. But at some point, you know, I think a lot of us are just fed up. And I'll just speak for myself there. But I also think a lot of consumers in general are just kind of like really fed up with this. And so I guess it's like an addiction, right? And so you have to break the addiction and <laughs> This is the methadone for for the future, but you know, I just think it's it. I don't know. I see it, and I don't understand what what the resistance is. Again, other than the folks who are holding the data today, who are like, no way. Like, I want to retain that power. Yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I I call it the the winging of the surveillance economy and the the rising of the consent economy. And I think people stub their toe on that because they think, oh, opt in, opt out. And I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about consensual relationships over time. And I'll give you another meat world analogy. I'll give you two. One is the advent of the clothing market. There once was a time where, you know, Mrs. Astor flew to London or Paris once a year. Her clothes were handmade. It was very, very clear who had who in the zoo. But even she only had so much allowance for clothing every year. And then everyone else had to scrape together what they had, have one or two dresses and make them at home. And then suddenly you could buy a shirt waist. You could buy a blouse that was buttonable and and washable. And maybe you even had two. And then from that exploded the 
sort of self-expression and the rise of the middle class. I think when you look at data in that way, instead of having only the rich get all and the rest of us get treated like digital exhaust, you also have a very thin margin that gets exhausted where you have curated data sets by choice, telemedicine for one. That's a new thing we didn't trust because we didn't understand that security was the staunch and underneath the contextual support for the business operations of privacy. Once you have that, you realize there are some people who are going to be very proactive with their health. They are healthy people that probably don't see their physician a lot. But guess what? They do preventative services. They want to know about knee inflammations or the best stretch for their hip flexor, and they're willing to pay for it. So I think you're going to see in a consent economy, there's a lot more margin. There is a new segmentation for data. And when you look at it as an asset class unto itself and you treat it with that textured value, you're going to kind of get to where we are in the clothing industry. I mean, arguably, are we using too much fast fashion and what's that doing the planet? So on. I'll give you my other meat world analogy that's really meat world is if you look at the economics of what consumers quote unquote, chose to eat around the turn of the last century. And you read the uh, Sinclair work in the jungle. So it wasn't the case that we were choosing to eat rat parts and sawdust and bleach. It's that they were sticking it into the sausage with no regulation and selling it to poor people to fill their bellies. And so when people actually saw what it was, they made different choices and those providers we're no longer allowed to continue to poison. I mean, they all turned into fast food. So question, you know, <laughs> everything has its expiration date, I suppose. But so that's what I've, I'm, I'm hearing from you, Jen, that's making really excited because I, I am a believer in, in the consent economy. I think it's it has not been curated. There is not enough tech to support it yet. But that's what I'm looking at on the horizon. So um, I'm hoping you're going to come with me while we're getting there. <laughs> Definitely. You know, and I think you, you mentioned something that I want to um, tease out a bit too, which is, you know, you've talked about this kind of focus on the wealthy and, you know, most of the world is not wealthy. Most of the world is poor. That's a lot of people that you're leaving behind or just kind of treating as an exploitable resource. And I just think that bears mentioning that, you know, we shouldn't treat. And I realize I'm oversimplifying by saying, quote unquote, the poor. But just to say, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people, <laughs> you know, most of America, if we just want to focus on America um, in that category, and we shouldn't treat them so poorly. And we should think about them as, you know, just because you can't sell people Teslas doesn't mean that they don't add value. I mean, there's so many ways in which people, you know, I mean, everybody buys toilet paper. Well, and all of the ideas, I mean, we're what we're doing is we're depleting our idea capital uh, stocks and our assets because there's some, you know, in, in Britain, it's I think one third of all children are living in poverty in Britain now. And I think it's, uh, what did they say, 40 million uh, American children, or maybe even more. I was just reading a report on this, are meal insecurity. We're not talking about like they don't have the latest Nike sneaker. They are meal insecure. And so they are not helping us with these new ideas and coming up with new solutions, they're surviving. So, um, you know, we've, we've seen this culturally for thousands of years when you, when you really treat your population as an intellectual asset, as well as a human able to pick up big things and shovels, think good things happen. Also, there's a value proposition here that I feel like um, switching to a consent economy has kind of a shakedown effect, I'll call it, on 
you know, companies whose value proposition just isn't there. And I think a lot of what you see right now with the surveillance economy, if we want to differentiate, are a lot of propositions that are, again, based on gathering data without your consent, gathering data without your knowledge. And, you know, there's not truly a good value proposition there. And certainly in the, when I've worked on dark patterns cases, which I've done for regulators, you know, the clearest cases of those are the people or the companies that are engaged in just outright deception. There's no value proposition. They are just there to deceive you and to get your money. And so not to say that we won't see hucksters <laughs> in the consent economy. Um, of course, you know, again, if you can try to control the dark patterns piece of the puzzle and not force people into consent, then maybe there's uh, some check on that. But that, you know, there's just lots of instances today where I think there really is no value proposition there for people. And so kind of forces you, I would argue, to level up a bit in thinking through, like, what is the actual value of your business that you're offering to people? We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets and our continuing examination of digital identity and its role in building a trust-based economy. Please help us get the word out about the podcast by leaving your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Your support and engagement means the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABEX, I'm Michelle Dennity. See you again next week. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Markets.